0: We are in Revelation chapter 8. We started our first, we're in the section of of trumpets. Uh, So uh, we're going to get through uh, hopefully the the next uh, three. We did the first one in verse uh, 7. We're going to read uh, these as we go here. Um, But before we get into these, I want to kind of... um, uh, Back up here a little bit, just by way of uh, of recapping, because we were running out of time. We left with this wonderful guy named Alaric um, and the uh, the Visigoths and and uh, what they what they were. I want to mention another group, and this is called the they're called the Um uh, I was thinking Liz might be here. She's actually descendant from this group of people. She's she was talking about where they were from. Uh, and this group of people, the Swabi uh kind of combined with the Visigoths, and uh, they attacked at the same time the Visigoths were attacking uh, into Rome as we're talking about the destruction of Rome god's vengeance on Rome right that the incense that was that was poured down uh, of the of the saints' prayers on on this on this empire they are attacking westward, and so this is the land that they between them conquered, so they end up becoming the the Portuguese. Uh, and it was funny they they didn't start out Portuguese; they started out in the what would we would call the Czech Republic. Uh, but they end up being uh, from Portugal and then northern Spain. So, um, and and we talked about throughout these, we noticed this idea of a third. And there's four of them, and you can't have four-thirds, right? So, so they're, they're not all talking about a third of the same thing. But if we look at this, we look at about a, a land mass um, that is roughly about a third of the Roman Empire. This group of people uh, attacked about a third of the Roman Empire. The northern, obviously, they didn't really dwell over there, and we don't really, on our map here, for size sake, we don't have the eastern part of it. Uh, over by, uh, we can see a little bit of Turkey, but um, and then over going over towards Arabia. So, um, so that's just kind of uh, wrapping them up before we get to this, this next one here. So the second trumpet sounds in verse 8 and 9, and it says, The second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire and was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea that had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. So this is kind of self-explanatory. The first, uh, we talked about the, the Visigoths attacked and they destroyed a lot of crops. That was what they did. Where are we going to expect to see this, uh, this type of warfare? What kind of warfare are we talking about? Right? We're talking probably about a naval conquest. <laughs> what is interesting, um, we have the idea of a mountain. What is the idea of a mountain? Mountains were this a notable power. Right? Um, and I like the idea of kind of the the uh, the contrast here. We have a mountain fighting on the sea, um, so we have a land power that ends up becoming a naval power. Is what it sort of looks like to me. Uh, and we'll see if that is uh, if we find that in the scriptures uh, and in history anywhere. Uh, so let's talk about a group called the Vandals. Uh, anybody ever heard of the Vandals before? Right? Um, and yes, that's why they're called the Vandals. They were, that, that, we get our word vandalism from this group of people. They were Polish, <laughs> uh, or at least they occupied what is now Poland. I don't know if they're related to the Polish now, because they migrate. Around 425, um, and, and we see that they are landlocked. That's going to be important. Around the year 425, we get another group of people moving into the area. Uh, we're going to talk about more about them here shortly. But the Huns move in, so everybody else moves out. That's kind of what you do when the Huns come in. Uh, so the Vandals moved. As they moved, they started conquering. And uh, they didn't ever really conquer the Visigoths. They were kind of migratory. Um, they never set up camp. But in uh, 428, a guy by the name of Genseric becomes their uh, king. And uh, he moves through. And they conquer from 428 to 439. They conquer northern Africa. What is important about northern Africa? Anybody know what is important about northern Africa at this point in time? no oh, Hannibal 600 years earlier but here right he, this is where Hannibal was from uh, this is uh, and again we, we because of our pictures of north africa we don't really think of this you know we think of world war II and erwin rommel in a big desert the desert rat or whatever he was called this was the breadbasket this was incredibly fertile land you know almost 2000 years ago uh, and so this fed the roman empire you wanted to control the Roman Empire, you had to control this piece of land. Uh, so, so they conquered it. So already Rome is, is about done um, when they conquer this. Now they're nice, they'll sell their food and stuff to the Roman Empire, but, but this is not going to be where it's at. You notice that 428 to 439 is a long period of time, and Genseric does something that his people have never done before. He builds a navy. Um, and, so, and so we see this picture uh, coming through this, this once landlocked power up in Poland that is now migrated all the way down to Africa, and they're building a navy. Well, um, in 440 and 441, that navy takes action. They begin their northern assault on the Roman Empire. They uh, take Sicily, um, they um, Malta, the Lusania coast, which is the heel of Italy. and They are not done. In 442 to 443, they attack north and west, and uh, they end up controlling all of the islands, certainly, of, of this area of the Mediterranean and they attacked some coastal places too. And then uh, in 455, they hit Rome. They sack Rome uh, for 14 days where the the Visigoths had done it for 3 to 6. Now, in sacking Rome, what advantage do they have? How did they come in? They came in from the sea, so they have the ability to transport a whole lot more stuff than a bunch of people who've come in on foot, and they stripped it there. And, because we're talking about the vandals, they did what hasn't been done before. Alaric, at least, was um, he was respectful of certain things in churches and shrines, this guy is Genseric uh, is not respectful of anything. He just kind of destroys what he can't take, uh, and so so we have this word vandalism from him. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about Cape Bond because um, we've talked about some of this. Uh, the picture here, uh, the this fire was thrown into the sea, uh, and. and uh, by the way, after, after this attack here on Rome, he turns back and he goes back to all of these islands which he's already destroyed and he plunders them again on his way back down. Uh, so there is a lot, of, um, a lot of attacking going on. Spain, a place called Liguria, Tuscany, Campania, Lusania, Brutum, Apulia, and you, Venice, th- just everywhere. He's up and down Italy and, and throughout these Through these islands, when he is done, the Roman Empire is called the Kingdom of Italy. I've mentioned that before, but he's kind of the one that does it uh, because they don't have their—they—they can't sustain the massive amount. They don't have naval authority. Uh, Rome has had naval authority in the Mediterranean for centuries. And they don't have this, this, uh, this great farming community under their control. So it is uh, in its last days when he's done in the 460s. So uh, I did want to mention, though, this one thing here. Uh, let see. To try to get rid of them, uh, the Western Empire was having struggles with their own navy. So the Eastern Empire, which is going to last for a long time, sends over a navy and they kind of blockade him at that tip uh, It's in Tunisia right there kind of where the, that big arrow goes up from, towards Rome uh, they blockade him in and they, they, they say you're going to have to surrender and he was considering surrendering he said give me five days to, to think about it so they said okay which was their mistake they should have annihilated him there and we wouldn't be having this story <laughs> however they gave him five days and I want to read to you what he does with those five days. And we're kind of picking it up in the middle. So he was considering, uh, as we talk about this, he was considering surrender. and it says, now during this short interval, the wind became favorable to the plans of Genseric. He uh, manned his largest ships of war with the bravest of the Moors, those are Spanish, and Vandals, and, they, uh, and behind them they towed large barks, which are big flat barges, basically, filled with combustible material. In the obscurity of night, three destructive vessels uh, were launched against the unguarded and unsuspecting fleet of the Romans, who were awakened by the sense of their instant danger. Their close and crowded order assisted the progress of the fire, which was communicated with rapid and irresistible violence. The noise of the wind, the crackling of the flames, and the cries of the soldiers uh, and sailors who could neither command or obey increased the horror of the nocturnal tumult. And while they labored to get themselves away from the fire ships and to save a least part of the navy, the galleys of Genseric assaulted them uh, with disciplined valor. And many of the Romans who escaped the fury of the flames were destroyed or taken by the victorious vandals. That is, to me, a picture of a, a mountain <laughs> thrown into the sea, this burning mountain. Uh, he invented, at least in the Western Hemisphere, the use of fire ships. Right. That's not been done before. It's alleged to have been done in China once. Um, but it's not been done in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, and and here we have a, a, a man who uh, whose people were... Did not live originally anywhere near water, and they they become this this uh, this military power, and they become ironically the, the group of people that destroy the Roman navy now, uh, as to a third, a third of the Mediterranean talks about becoming blood. And if we look at the Mediterranean, right, this is the area of the Mediterranean that he controls. The, now, Rome still had a navy. Uh, he didn't destroy all of it. But uh, the western part of Rome will now control this part in the eastern, uh, in the central. And the western empire, or excuse me, the eastern empire will control, from Turkey, will control the what we are used to talking about around Palestine and, and that area from Cyprus up to Crete. And that's roughly a third to me, if I'm looking at it. Uh, and again and again, the scriptures really are um, proven to be true when we, when we look at this. So I, I find this really, um, to me it's fascinating. I know some people really don't like history. Uh, but remember that this is not just God showing off. Right? This is God preparing his people for things that are going to happen in the future. And God is taking vengeance on this, on this empire, uh, this empire of iron that he, he talked about in, in, uh, in Daniel. He said, this, this great empire is during the days of these kings. I'm going to set up a kingdom, and, and, uh, and it's going to roll down. It's going to gather some strength and force, and it's going to strike this in the feet, and it's going to wipe it out. And that's exactly what's happening. So uh, this is that, that process. And it's not always a pleasant process, by the way, for Christians. There are Christians who suffered. There are Christians who died uh, at the hands of Genseric. Uh, but uh, um, God is concerned about winning the war, um, and that's what he's doing. So we come to this uh, next trumpet, the third trumpet. For this, we're going to end up backing up a little bit in time, but uh, but they each of these start successively. Now, Serix was a long. He started in 428 and went up through 467. He was a long conqueror. Uh, some of these are, are pretty done and over, and that's what we have here. Uh, so, the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as a were like a lamp some of yours might say a torch it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters and the name of the stars called wormwood and the third part of the waters became wormwood and many died from the waters because they were made bitter so i want to look at some of the the pictures here uh... the first that might grab your attention is a star right that's kind of where we start with this and a burning torch. Now, if I thought of a star that was like a burning torch, what would I be? Uh, That's Isn't that kind of the, the idea? You, they just, or a shooting star, you know, I'll make a wish on a shoot, which is a meteorite uh, coming into the atmosphere. Something like that. But something, it's kind of there. It's not like a star that we see every night. It's constant. It's kind of, it's going to come and it's going to go and it's going to be gone. Uh, and that's that's kind of what we're looking for, I think. Um, and it's called Wormwood. All right, and that's going to be interesting, and, and it has something to do with rivers. We've seen an attack on land, we've te- seen an attack on the sea, and now we're going to see something to do with rivers. So a star is, what we've talked about, is a, a notable person, right? Some notable, uh, something that grabs your attention. Uh, we've talked about this burning torch, which means some rapid type of a conquest and probably not going to last that long. Wormwood. What's wormwood? Does anybody have any ideas of what wormwood might be? Huh? Isn't it poison? Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's toxic. Where do we see wormwood used in the Bible or re- referred to? Okay. Okay. real, it's like a Okay, okay. Uh, it's always so um, it's ironic that, that Moses threw wormwood into the waters of Merah to make them drinkable because it's considered a bitter, it's what makes water bitter. Uh, Jeremiah uses the, the reference to drinking uh, wormwood uh, or waters of wormwood. Uh, I have no idea what it is. Uh, but it's it's a reference to Jeremiah uses it both in his in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Lamentations to refer to the the suffering uh, the bitter suffering of of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, so so we're going to see something some type of suffering, uh, significant suffering, I think. Uh, and I think the rivers. I think we're going to be looking at again this tactic the the, the way we, we've seen a guy on land. We've seen a guy on the sea. And I want to look at a notable person. So let's, let's go back to the Huns. Yes, this is the Huns. These are Hun skulls. That, is that not weird? They, they were described as being looking like an animal that walked upright. And what they did with their kids when they were born is they bound, like, like the Chinese would bind their feet. Okay. The Huns were Chinese originally. Um, as they uh, about the time that John writes this, in 100 A.D., the Huns have have lost a, a war against uh, China. They're from like, Mongolia, and so they start migrating very slowly across Europe, and they would. Every generation or so they would kind of stop and farm and then they would move and conquest a little and stop and farm. And as they go, they're gathering people. So they're not really a purebred people at all. They're they're just this mix of people who kind of like to go and travel and conquer and then settle down. And so we, we talked about how they kind of moved into the area around Ukraine and settled down there and they're mixing in, and, and there's tartars and stuff like that. We've probably, Katie and I have probably seen descendants uh, in the marketplace, kind of the Asian-looking ones. Those are those are probably related to the Huns. Um, and so, the Chinese we know for binding the feet, right, keep the feet small, which really did nothing but disfigure their feet. Well, they did that with skulls too. Some of these people, they would bind their kids' skulls, and it would make them really tall. Um, and so that's kind of gross, but You kind of have a picture. So, uh, let's look at the Huns. Well, if I was thinking of a star and a prominent person, who would I think of? I was, back to the skull, I was kind of curious that that sounds like they would have been brain damaged. Uh, Well, Attila the Hun, I gave it away, was a very intelligent person. Um, So we're going to talk about this notable star. Uh, Attila the Hun comes on the scene in... uh, uh, around 440. And we're going to see where he attacks. Um, uh, he attacks a place called Castra Konstantina. Uh, and that is about um, what, a few miles north of Budapest. Anybody know what country Budapest is in? Hungary. Hungary. That interesting. Now the Hungarians today are not related to the Huns. Uh, they existed before. They were just controlled there by the Huns, um, so they get their name, Hungaria as Europe writes the writes their history for them. That's called, the, you know, that's the place where the Huns are from, but they're not related. Um, and after this, he's going. He really wants to attack Constantinople. He never was successful. And so, look at where he's attacking. If you can see that. Um, but let me read you a slight list of places. He actually conquered um, 70 cities just in the Eastern Empire alone. Uh, let me live, just give you a list of them. Uh, and this is from 440 uh, to, I have 450, but that's actually 447. He takes like a little break in there. But um, Sirmium. Uh, which is on the Sava River, Belgrade and Retaria, which is he did a lot on the Danube, uh, Marcianopolis, which is on the Belislav, Nisus, which is on the Nisava, Sardisus, which is on the Iskar, and so on, and so on, and so on. He attacked river cities. They were strongholds, they were really good military vantage points, and he was incredibly smart. Um, so, so he attacks almost exclusively uh, on uh, on Rivers that is what he does, so I mentioned this break. This is kind of interesting, and so we need to, uh, as we say, he, he wanted to 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 attack Constantinople, but it is just it 's it's not for no reason that Constantinople is going to last for another thousand years under the Eastern Empire uh, and <clears throat> It's during this period of time where he's trying to strategize and do whatever that an empress in the West, Valentinian's, well, not really empress, the, the sister of an emperor, is going to be forced to marry a senator to whom she does not wish to marry. So she sends her ring to Attila, the Hun. Uh, her name was Honoria, and she's hoping that I don't know why you would want this guy to rescue you, but she must really not have liked that senator. So, uh, so she sends a letter. That is an excuse. I don't know if he was ever interested in it, but it was an excuse to do something. So he gets off, and from 450 to 452 or 451, whatever, he attacks the West, and he attacks the West, and there are, uh, there are descriptions of, of places where he just wiped out and just the cities no longer existed when he was done with them 20,000 here uh, 150,000 there he is it was brutal uh, babies he didn't care he didn't care priests didn't care <laughs> he had no uh, he, he just an animal killed his own brother um because he didn't like the rivalry. I guess when you read history, it's pretty common. It's kind of barbaric to us, but uh, that's that's this guy. So he marches across the Seine River and defeats Orleans, which which is on the Loire River. Chalons, which is one of those really, really, really bad wars uh, or battles. Then he was still denied Honorius' hand. He marches down the Rhone River, crosses the Alps into Italy. Uh, he levels Aquileia. Aquileia is where Constantine was born. Um, and it had been a, a, a place that was pretty resistant to, um, to attack. And he's like, mm, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to win. So he leveled it. Leveled. This is one of the places that he did not leave in existence. That's on the Natisa River. Altinum, which is on the DC River. I'm pronouncing these completely wrong. I understand that. So <laughs> I'm murdering Italian here. Um, Altinum, uh, I said Concordia, Padua, and Vicenza, which is on the Bacchiglione. Uh, Verona, Bergamo, Milan. Hey, this one I know. Uh, Pavia, Turin, and Modena. Now, Modena is interesting because. That's this southernmost red dot. And he's moving south towards Rome. And we've seen this guy before. Emperor Leo came out and bribed um, the first guy. And I'm drawing a blank. Um, but uh, he comes out and negotiates a marriage. And now the Honoria never married him. But he negotiates the marriage. Okay, we'll, we'll set this up. And he leaves, and that's in four fifty-two. Uh, in in the meantime, he's marrying another woman. Uh, he had lots of wives, uh, and he dies uh, the night of his marriage to this other woman of a nosebleed, which is really weird. So it, it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. Um, so that is um, that's the end. And the Huns, his two sons die fairly quickly after, and the Huns disappear. No one knows where they went. They had no structure in terms of government. They were never, they were kind of farmers or they were attackers, but they never really set up government, and so they disappear. And his arguments about were they Hungarians or were they weren't. They weren't uh, because the Hungarians show too many language things that were prior to. There's too many things about their culture that is still Scandinavian. And that's the picture of a comment. So interesting, so fascinating. Um, and what about a third? Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is a reference to the, the third of the rivers. It talks about a third of the rivers. Was this actually literally a third of the rivers or major rivers or what have you? You could make a good case for it. Uh, I haven't charted, I'm not a cartographer, I haven't charted every river of Europe. I just know that he liked rivers. Um, So was it rivers or was it the population? Uh, The population of, again, we don't know because we don't have numbers. Look up Google, how many people did Attila kill? No numbers. You you can't find estimates for it. You find estimates for Genghis Khan... (laughs) Uh, who was much worse of a murderer in in China? Um, Europe was around twenty um, something million people at this point in time. It's quite conceivable that he killed six to eight. Right? If if that would be a third. Uh, if if uh, if Genghis Khan can kill forty million people, and I suppose Attila could kill uh, kill six. To eight, I, I, again, I don't know what the third is a reference to specifically. But I assume that back then they did. The people who lived through this, I think, understood what was going on and saw the last one here, the fourth trumpet. Yeah, there was one of one of those uh, leaders. I thought it was Attila, that had like he he kind of came up with scorched earth policy. And, like, he, uh, he, wound up, he wound up salting all the fields and whatever and all the places he destroyed. Was it him? I I, Genghis or? I, I don't know. I, I, I've heard of that, and I, it's been done numerous times. Um, and I know it was done in Africa at one point, and I am I'm not. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we have the, the desertification of, of northern Africa, but I'm not sure who, who did it. Um, at, at least at this point in time, it was still a fertile place. Uh, but I've heard of that. Um, so, I've also heard that it really, um, that that's not the cause of things. That that kind of, the, the rain hits it and it dissipates. So, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm really not sure. But I have heard that before. So, we get to the fourth trumpet here. And it says, the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. And so, the third part of them was darkened, and the days shone not for a third part of it, and the night Likewise. So we're going to talk about the sun, moon, and stars. We've talked about sun, moon, and stars before. So we kind of know that this is actually not talking literally about the sun, moon, and stars. How can we know that? Because the sun, moon, and stars are still in the sky. Yes. The sun, uh, well, the, yeah. so, so people, people predicting this would say, well, this is something that's going to happen in the future. Right, so the sun, moon, and stars and all that. We've already seen the sun, moon, and stars destroyed previously through a different prophecy of something different that's going to happen. So if they're still up there, then we have to understand that this is prophetic. This is not something that's going to happen to our sun, moon, and stars. Because he's already wiped them out in a previous chapter. <laughs> John has, has John forgotten that he already destroyed the sun, moon, and stars? You know? Oh, yeah, I already used that one. Okay, so, so no. No. Uh, we, we know we're talking probably about notable people or some notable power of some sort. Uh, so and again, we're going to get to this is going to be one that to me is a little bit more difficult to discern. But there is something interesting. What do we not see here that we've seen in the previous three? Well, I'm not talking about the sun, moon, and stars. I'm just talking about in the passage, there's something notably missing. You notice there's not a lot of destruction. There's no references to blood. And there's no, there's no references to brutality, really, in terms of, of on the masses of people. And this is going to be different. This one is going to be different in that regards. We're going to talk about the day and night and what that means for them to be darkened which is an important element. There's not really a lot of elements in this one. There's not nearly so many moving parts. Um, So this is our map. This is where the Huns... we just kind of pick it up where we were before the Huns disappear. Uh, And we we need to look at uh, uh, this transition. He's dead, and it's obvious from the beginning of his death, from that moment... That this thing is going to fall apart. And so it breaks up into all these different groups of people. And we're going to talk about two the, these groups called the Siri and the Heruli. Um, he had two, uh, Attila had two advisors General Orestus, who was Roman, actually, and Etikon, who was, he was from the Siri tribe. And they go their separate ways and they both have kids. Uh, General Orestus has a kid by the name of Romulus. Well, he calls him Romulus Augustulus. Right after, uh, after he places him on the throne, uh, General Orestus overthrows uh, emperor in the in the at Rome, the Roman Emperor uh, Nepos, I believe his name was, and puts his son on the throne. He will be the last emperor of Rome, the western part of Rome. He's 16 years old. Um, and uh, he's going to get about a year at it um, before it all comes crashing down. Etikin has a son. His name is Odoacer. Odoacer um, unites the Syri and the Heruli underneath uh, the more dominant force of the, the Heruli. And he attacks. In like really doesn't really do much attacking. Uh, we do need to note that by this time the capital was not Rome it was a place called Ravenna uh, which is up near Venice and he doesn't really attack he doesn't really destroy he just goes there he kills uh, General Arrestus, has him executed and he forces his son to resign didn't kill him he actually gave him a pension said he sent him off to a fairly nice place said enjoy the rest of your life you're not the Emperor anymore I am uh, and that's it. that happens in four seventy six right and they governed for a while, and that's it that's wrong that's it uh we have a a sun and a moon. I don't know about stars this is the hard part the stars did he do something with senators i don't I don't know there's no other rival emperors or anything like that i don't, this, is, this, this does get a little difficult. Um, but there was no need to conquest. People kind of liked Odoacer. And he becomes the first barbarian to govern. Um, and it will change hands. Rome will change hands from this group to that group. And God has said, that's enough. I'm wrapping it up. I've poured out my anger on Rome. And we're going to turn to a different part of Rome uh, next week. And uh, I want to talk about this darkening of the day and night. Uh, Now, as we said, we can't be literal. Uh, And... One of the things that's interesting here, what is this period of time called? Starting from here, the history refers to this period of time for almost the next thousand years, almost exactly the dark ages. The dark ages. Well, that's kind of rather ironic, wouldn't you say? This darkening of the sun. Um, and one of the things that happens, what happens to religion? what happens to christianity well it's quiet not nearly so much persecution at least in the short term i mean they kind of persecute each other the different rivals for for what we'd call the orthodoxy uh we're a few years away from arian arianism is going to be wiped out uh as as the kings who will start to, to govern will no longer be Aryan. We've talked about that. Uh, that's one of the transitions with the end of the Roman Empire, or at least the Western Roman Empires. Aryans aren't going to control the throne. So they're going to be um, removed. But you get uh, there's a lot of things that are going on in religion, uh, and these are things which darken the sky, if you will. A darkened Christianity. again, I don't know that this is what this is referencing, but it's interesting. Um, this is the period of monasteries. I mean, it's already, they've already been there, but they're going to proliferate. Self-abuse. Remember, Paul talks about that. Things that are considered like smart religion, debasing the body. They whip their body. That's where this all starts in this this time period. We have fake miracles and this apostle's bones and this guy's finger and this guy's what and the nails of this cross and this and that and, and the fake miracles. That's obscuring Christianity. It's not what it was designed to be. We have councils. This council meets and we say you're not a Christian and you can't have communion and you're going to have to leave. You're in exile, and Christianity gets darkened. It's not dark. This, the, the, God says my, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. It's always going to continue. It's just going to get a little dark for a while. Counterfeit Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, there have been some around, but they're going to proliferate. In our view, we look at this kind of as a sad time, maybe as a positive, at least that that formal persecutions are ended. But we tend to look at any negative experiences as as bad, don't we? This is bad. Um, Then God told us to pray. What uh, what one thing did God ask us to pray for in reference to our, our leaders? He said, pray for your leaders so that what? So you can worship in peace. Mm. Right? He didn't say, pray for them to make good laws that are really spiritual. or He, he didn't say yeah, any of that. He just said, so that you can worship in peace. God is not really concerned with the, the administration. I mean, I, I'm sure there are certain things that he would like and whatnot. But... Um, and yet, in peace, as we see here, sometimes things go the wrong way. We get comfortable in our prosperity. And, and God says, I'm going to have to take it away now. You, you've had a little too much prosperity, and you've gotten where, where it becomes kind of... It's, the prosperity doesn't become about worshiping in peace. It doesn't become about your, your faith anymore. It becomes about maintaining the prosperity. And God says, okay, well, we've gotten a little bit off the beaten path, and I'm going to have to take it away from you now. And I'll give it to a group of people that will like it. And uh, and that is the advantage of the dark period. What is the advantage of dark period? Because I, I do think we are kind of in a not a dark ages like they had as we close here. But what is the one advantage of being in a dark period? I was thinking of what... Like... You had said a couple days ago when you were talking about this, um, in communism, in China, whatever the Communist Party says, you believe the opposite. Yeah. So in a way that, like, in a dark period, you might have people that are, you know, your leadership is really trying to deceive you, but you actually, okay, because they said that, I'm going to go to the... Okay, so that's that's one thing. That it, it attracts kind of a almost a rebellion to and want to do good. But light shines brighter in darkness. It does. Uh, And that is an opportunity. The people who remain are faithful. And so as we possibly enter a period that is not quite as bright as as we would like, it's an opportunity to shine brighter. We're going to conclude that.